Think back over your last six days or so. Any conversations stick out? Short, long, deep, not so deep. Any conversations stick out? Any, any things that after you walked away from a conversation, you begin to ponder like, what just happened there? With that in mind, let me lead us off in prayer, and I'm going to read from a verse in Psalm 85 that will introduce us into what, where we're going this morning. Please pray with me. Lord, this morning we come and we pray with the psalmist, let us hear, let us hear what God the Lord will speak. For you say, God, that you will speak peace to your people. You will speak peace to your saints. And so, Lord, we desire this morning to hear what you have to say to us. Prepare our hearts to hear from the mouth of God this morning. And as the psalmist also says, let your people not turn back to folly. So God, we ask that your word, your mouth, your, your voice would be so impactful this morning that if there is folly that we are swimming in, you would pull us out of that slough. Give us ears to hear this morning, we ask Jesus. In your name, amen. The thing about conversations is that... Um, they usually land on us differently depending on our relationship with the person that we're speaking with, right? If you're speaking with a tutor, there's a dynamic there. They're tutoring you. Or if you're the tutor, you're tutoring the other person. If you're the parent, you're parenting, even though sometimes you feel like, wait a minute, who's actually the parent here? The fact is, is that in our conversations, we have a social dynamic that is at play when we're speaking with people. And because of that, the words of those conversations land on us differently. And sometimes we walk away from those conversations thinking, uh, how should I process what just happened there? What are the motives of that other person that were revealed in that conversation or maybe were hidden and I'm wondering about? What was that conversation supposed to produce? These are all things that we, we consider, whether we admit it or not. Sometimes they're just intuitive considerations. But they all play a role in the conversations that we have with other people. Well, last week, Bill preached to us about how we have a Bible-centered Sunday worship service. And today, as he mentioned last week at the end of the sermon, we're going to talk about how the Bible is shaping us. And I, I, I want to say this directly, and I, I formed the sermon title a little bit differently, so we can think specifically about this question. How does the Word of God land on us? How does it land on us? Because in our cultural vernacular, that kind of speaks to the reality of the social dynamic within conversations. We, we engage with people, but then how do the words that we say and the words that they say land on us? And that's what we're considering this morning. How does the word of God land on us? Well, first of all, let me just kind of 
in brief say a few things about the Word of God. There are lots of things that could be said, but I'm going to use a little alliteration this morning. Ironically, all P's and most of the verses are from the Psalms. First of all, the Word of God is powerful. It is powerful. Psalm 29.4 says this, The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. If you haven't considered this before, everything that God accomplishes is spoken. From Genesis 1-1 to John 1-1, all the way through Revelation 22, God is constantly speaking. His voice is imbued with power. He speaks creatively and things happen. In the Old Testament, he spoke at creation. He spoke through the covenants and he spoke with correction to his people. And we know in John 1.1, he spoke through Christ. The word of God is powerful. So when it lands on us, we should be anticipating power. The word of God is also proven. Psalm 18.30 says this, This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. The word of God is proven. If you think about maybe defeater beliefs that people hold, we're talking a little bit about that down in the apologetics class downstairs. You might wonder, can I trust the word of God? Yes, it's proven. It's archaeologically verified, historically reliable. And as many of us sitting in this room can say, personally attested. Say that God's word has been proven true in my life. The word of God is also perfect. Psalm 19.7, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Praise God that God uses his word to turn foolish people into wise people. It is perfect. The word of God is also personal. inspired by the Holy Spirit. God invested, breathed out his word through the authors to then come personally to people like us. But that's not even the most powerful reality of its personal nature. It was personally shown in Jesus. Hebrews 1, 1 through 2. Long ago and at many, and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, the word made flesh. So how does the word of God land on us? How are his purposes realized by his own self-revealing? Well, one final P, and this takes us to Mark chapter 4, is that the word of God is planted. The word of God is planted. Let me kind of summarize where we're going this morning, and you're going to see this in the parable of the sower here. What are his purposes in his self-revealing through the word of God? In one word, I would say this, maturity. Maturity. Maturity is translated from the Greek word teleos in the New Testament, and teleos carries this meaning of wholeness, not lacking anything. When it comes to 
being an artisan or tradesman, highly competent. You could even be a teleos thief. It also speaks to being a finished product where a master craftsman takes what was one thing and then puts his skill into it and says, this is what I've created, teleos. It's this finished product, this wholeness, this becoming what that thing or that person is intended to be. In James 1, James says, remain steadfast. Let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect, teleos, and complete. In Hebrews 12, Jesus is the author and finisher, teleos, of our faith. And listen to this from Colossians 1, 28 and 29. Paul says this, Christ we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. It was Paul's aim to bring all those who he preached Christ to, to a place of Christian maturity, spiritual completeness in Christ. Do you long for that this morning? Say, yes, Lord, make me complete, please. Make me mature, please. The word of God lands on us for maturity And with that planted word in mind, we turn to Mark chapter 4. Listen to verse 1. And Jesus began to teach beside the sea. And a very large crowd gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables. And in his teaching, he said to them, listen. Behold, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on the rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And Jesus said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. It's a very familiar parable to probably a lot of us in here. I'm hoping that the Holy Spirit gives us ears to hear this morning. To hear, listen, and understand. Perhaps to a greater degree than we have in the past because it is the Spirit who is working in us. The disciples at this point did not understand. They did not understand. And in verse 13, Jesus says to the disciples, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables. So in a way, this parable is setting up the matrix for understanding all of the rest of the parables because what Jesus is talking about is the heart. And if the heart is not able to understand, the heart's not going to understand any of the rest of the parables either. 
He's about to talk about the word. So I, I want to define that term a little bit, okay? Because this is the word of God, and I just described it with five Ps. This is the word of God. But Mark is being a little bit more specific here. Jesus, actually, is being more specific. And Mark is bringing his specificity into the gospel here. Jesus, when he's talking about the word, is speaking directly of the gospel. The good news of Jesus Christ came to earth, died, resurrected, and now redeeming his people for himself and uniting them in him. This is good news, people. This is good news. And Jesus is saying this. The word that I'm going to tell you about to explain this parable is the gospel. Listen to how he describes the gospel in Mark chapter 1. These are, his first ver- these, these are his first words in the gospel. Verse 14. Now after G- John, the baptizer, was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. Gospel of God, word of God, synonymous. Okay? Synonymous. And we can know that because all of Scripture is pointing to the gospel either explicitly or implicitly. And what did Jesus say? The time is fulfilled. And the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Who had just shown up? He had. Who was at hand? He was. The gospel had arrived in Christ. So the reality of the personal nature of the word of God is a manifested right here. Jesus shows up on the scene. The gospel has arrived, people. If you want to know the gospel, listen to me. The kingdom of God is at hand. There is a new ruler who is going to put his mark, his stamp, his claim on the earth. So with that understanding that the word is the gospel, let's go in and hear, hear Jesus' explanation to the disciples. We'll go to verse 14 of chapter 4. The sower sows the word. And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. So here are three pictures of immaturity, of incompletion. The sower, when he goes out to sow, he's sowing for a reason, to see an eventual harvest. But we have three pictures here where maturity does not come. The first in verses 14 and 15, the word of God is sown on path people. And that's another thing important to realize about this parable. Oftentimes when we think about it, we imagine ourselves as the wheat, That's not what Jesus is saying. The seed is the word. If the seed is the word or the seed is the gospel, the harvest of the word or the gospel is more gospel. The people are the soil. 
The people are the soil. So here in verses 14 and 15, the word of God is sown on path people. And what happens? Satan takes away the word. Verses 16 and 17, the word of God is sown on rocky soil people. They hear the word, quick acceptance, full of joy. But trouble comes their way because of the word. Persecution, tribulation, and they fall away. They stumble. They shrink. Verses 18 and 19, the word of God is sown on thorny soil people. They hear the word, but it's choked out by the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things, and explicitly they are said to not be fruitful. And then there's one picture of maturity. Verse 20, but those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. They hear the word, they accept it, and there's a bountiful yield from that original seed. They bear fruit, lots of it. This parable is a heart test. It's a diagnostic to understand how the word of God lands on different people with different, often incomplete or immature results. As I studied this parable over the summer, I had a couple of realizations. Admittedly, I was in the place where this is a familiar parable. Even Jesus' explanation is just what I'd always thought. Okay? But as I looked at it further, I was like, wait a minute. There's something else going on here. I had always understood it as being a, a diagnostic to say, so-and-so heard the gospel, and they jumped up, and they sprung up. There was, there was life, spiritual life, and then they just shriveled. And so this parable gave me a way to understand what happened there. Um, we often did this at Phantom Ranch, our summer camp. We often did this at day camp and thinking through like, okay, their heart must be like this because we've kind of seen this happen. We're spiritual heart doctors in a sense using, using Jesus' diagnostic here. But I must confess this, that oftentimes in my heart of hearts, I've used this diagnostic as a final determinant. Rocky soil. Not that in, not that I would like say, oh yeah, they're rocky soil, they're going to continue to be rocky soil, but in a way that said, rocky soil, not surprised this happened. And so there would be introduced in my own heart a jadedness. Maybe, um, what else can we do type feeling? Can change ever happen in that person at the heart level? But here, I'm going to give you two realizations that I came at as I was studying this. Number one, Jesus does not intend these soil conditions to necessarily be ultimate or terminal heart diagnoses. He's not the doctor saying here, guess what? They're thorny soil, always going to be thorny soil, never going to be good soil. Sorry, next. 
That's not what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is not making terminal heart diagnoses. He is saying here that these are revealing how the gospel is received in specific occasions. Like a Sunday morning. Like a night at Phantom Ranch. Like a time when you're sitting, like a time when you're sitting across from someone at lunch and God opens up a door for the gospel and they're just not understanding it. And it seems that Satan has just come and plucked it. Does that mean that that person is always hard-hearted? Praise God, not necessarily. How can we see this in the text? We see this, look at um, chapter 3, verse 20. I'm sorry, stay in chapter 4, go to verses 10 through 12. When Jesus was alone, so he had just spoken this parable, those around him with the 12 asked him about the parables. And he said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. Wow, you, you know the secret, and it's been given to you. But for those outside, everything is in parables. So they may indeed see, but not perceive, and may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And you say, that sounds like a harsh, harsh quotation from Isaiah. What it is meant to, to produce in us is a reality that is only by the Holy Spirit that our hearts can believe. It is only through the illumination of the Spirit that we can see the word, understand the word, believe the word, and trust in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And to these disciples, he's saying, you've been given the secret. What a privilege. What a grace. But for those outside, everything is in parables. To which I would ask us, who is outside? And you might be thinking, well, there are a lot of people outside of the kingdom. Is, you know, start naming things like that. No, I'm, I'm talking about here in the text. Look at chapter 3, verse 21. When Jesus' family heard what he was preaching, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. Go down to verse 31 of chapter 3. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him, and called him, and a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Wow. The textual proximity here doesn't allow us to escape out of what Jesus is doing here. He is specifically telling the disciples in this room that his mom, Mary, and his siblings are still outside. They cannot understand the truth of the gospel. Yet we know later that Mary followed Christ. We know later that at least James and Jude, two of his brothers, followed him as their Lord. Their hearts at this point were maybe hard. Maybe they were rocky. They were feeling the, the tension 
that being people of Nazareth was now producing in their home life. His brothers might have had businesses. Maybe they took over the carpentry business, and now their oldest brother is out there talking this crazy stuff and doing these miraculous things. How do you do that? He never did that at home when we were growing up. And they're saying, we got to get him back. The social pressure in Nazareth is too intense. And so they go to seize him, saying he is out of his mind. So here we see that the reality is there were some people here that Jesus was saying outside, they are outside, and they were people that were very close to him relationally, that one day were going to be inside. That's the power of the gospel. So these here are heart responses to specific occasions of sowing. And if you think about it, isn't this proven true in your experience also? If I took a poll right now and said, how many of you trusted Christ, believed in the gospel the very first time you ever heard it? We might have three, maybe not even that many. The reality is most of the time, people hear the gospel and hear the gospel and hear the gospel, and the Spirit doesn't give them the ears to hear and understand right away. It often happens later. It happened for me later. And I know it happened for a lot of you because I know your stories much later. Praise God that the people who had seen the gospel bounce off of us or Satan take it from us or spring up and then, and then uh, wither or try to work through thorny issues and we get choked out. Thankfully, there were other people that continued to pray that there would be good soil produced in us. So I would encourage you with this. If there is someone that you were thinking of that, God, please give them good soil hearts. Continue to pray that the Holy Spirit would produce good soil. And that the seed of the, of the gospel of Jesus Christ would go deeply into their heart and bear fruit. Keep sowing the word frequently and freely as the sower did. Don't give up. Someone else didn't give up for you. Second realization is this. Jesus also provides a heart test for good soil people. I could take another poll here, and for those of you who are familiar with this parable, you would probably say, whew, praise God, I'm good soil people. Next page. He provides a heart test for good soil people who, by God's grace alone, have been given the secrets of the kingdom, like the disciples, and we have heard and understood and been forgiven. Verse 12. For these people, the beauty of the reality here in verse 20 is that by God's grace, they will mature. They will see their faith completed. They will continue on to the end, as it talks about in, in uh, Hebrews 3, another instance of teleos. They will produce fruit. It's a guarantee because what the Spirit starts, the Spirit finishes. By God's grace, we will mature. We will produce fruit. And consider the yield again. Remember, we are soil. We are not the seed. The seed is the gospel. And it creates wordy people in our patch of soil. 
The yield produces word-filled people who, who spill out the word. Probably not many of us here are farmers, but if you go out into the country these days, I think somebody went out and saw sunflowers yesterday. Others of us like to do apple orchards. Maybe you go and pick corn or go through a corn maze, or maybe you just go and marvel at a wheat field. And you see that wheat that's grown up over the summer, and it's just heavy with more wheat. It's just full of the yield waiting to be harvested. This is the promise here. However, however, we must consider the dangers of having hearts that are occasionally hard, rocky, or thorny. Look at verses 24 and 25 of chapter 4. So this is after Jesus has explained the parable. And he said to them, pay attention to what you hear. We're hearing that repetition of hear a lot through these verses. Pay attention to what you hear with the measure. So he's pointing back to the reality of the measure, the 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold in verse 20. With the measure that you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. What is the measure? The measure is being word-filled. Is being a gospel person where you see the Spirit use the word in you in such a way that your field, your field becomes bountifully full of grain. And all, this, all the gospel seed that's popping up is maturing. It's bending over because there's more seed. Then the wind comes, and it blows it into other soil patches. What's the measure that we use? The measure that we use would say, would be, God, help me to be a word-filled plot of soil. Help your word sprout up in me and provide a bountiful yield for the sake of others. But there's still this consideration of hearts that are occasionally hard, rocky, or thorny. To which you'd say, well, but can we see this in the book of Mark? And I would say, yeah. Hard-hearted disciples. Look at Mark 6.52. Jesus has just fed the 5,000 earlier in chapter 6, and then he walks on water. Jesus has calmed the storm. They were terrified. They thought he was a ghost. And in verse 51, Jesus gets into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded. For they did not understand about the loaves. They just saw Jesus walk on water and calm a storm, and they're thinking about Jesus feeding the 5,000. Their hearts were hardened. Though they had the secret of the kingdom, in this instance, it appears that in some way that seed was taken from them. Look at Mark 8, 17. Actually, start in verse 14, just to give you a little bit more context here. We get to this bread thing again. Jesus had just fed the 4,000 at the beginning of chapter 8. And in verse 14, now the disciples had forgotten to bring bread. And they had only one loaf with them in the boat. 
And Jesus cautions them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Leaven would be the yeast that, that the Hebrews understood to be def defiling yeast. Okay? So Jesus kind of flips the script on them. They're thinking about bread that has yeast. And Jesus is saying, beware of the yeast. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. These guys are stuck on this. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Does that sound familiar? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? There was still a hardness of heart that these disciples were grappling with here. And they... It was just a fogginess to them. They were not understanding them. That's why Jesus is not understanding him. That's why Jesus is asking the question. But for us here talking about maturity, completion, consider the reality that Jesus just said 12 and 7. He's like, I did everything I was supposed to do in feeding the 4,000 and in feeding the 5,000. I brought those occasions to the full fruition that the Father intended for those times. And the, the yield was so incredible you guys picked up the leftovers. There's a spiritual reality here for the hard-hearted, and that reality is this, that Satan, as Jesus says, can come and actually steal, excuse me, steal the seed. But I'm a Christian. How can Satan come and steal the seed? Satan can come and steal the seed. This is the reality of the spiritual nature of, of preaching and teaching. This is not just from my mouth to your ears. This is by God's grace, thus saith the Lord through his word to you. Again, as I said at the beginning, depending upon the Holy Spirit to do his work in our hearts. If we're asking the Holy Spirit to do that, don't you think Satan is on high alert seeking to steal whatever he can? Certainly. Disciples can be hard-hearted occasionally. They can also be rocky soil occasionally. Tribulation or persecution, it's coming. I say that to us. It's coming, and it was coming to the disciples too. Look over at Mark 13, verse 19. Jesus is speaking in this chapter about the destruction of the temple, signs of the close of the age. He's using prophetic perspective and talking like in the near term to the disciples about some things and the farther term to the disciples about other things. And in verse 19, he says this, For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short those days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. I'll continue. Verse 21. And then if anyone says to you, look, 
here's the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders, signs and wonders even, to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard, I have told you all things beforehand. In brief, what is Jesus saying here? Good soil people won't ultimately be led astray, even by false Christs, false prophets, even by the pressure cooker of trials and tribulation, but those things are all coming. So be aware that your heart can get rocky and the sun of tribulation can scorch down on you and you can begin to wither. Christian, elect of the Holy Spirit, will you ultimately wither? No. Because what the Holy Spirit starts, the Holy Spirit completes. However, can there be an immaturity or a slowing of maturity? Certainly. Maybe look out for tribulation or persecution, and instead of opting for self-preservation, cling to the gospel. Disciples can also be thorny soil. World, wealth, other desires, the word is choked, and the person is unfruitful. We actually could go a lot of places for that, but let's look at Mark 8.33. Peter has just given the best answer of his life, saying to Jesus that you are the Christ. And in verse 31, Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. In this occasion... Jesus had just revealed his death. And Peter's like, that's not the plan. Or at least that's not my plan. He was looking at things with the world's wisdom. He had another desire that did not square with Jesus' purpose. Ultimately, his death and resurrection that would enable us to go to maturity. But let's think about this a little bit more about this thorny soil. Because this is the most violent of the descriptions. It's subtly violent, but it's violent. Verse 18. Others are sown, are, others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. This is a subtle but violent struggle. We don't go out and see weeds choking good plants. It happens slowly, subtly, and silently. I think that that's what Jesus is getting at here. These things are good things, riches, they're deceitful. 
the cares of the world instead of the cares of Christ. And then just kind of this general desires for other things. And these things enter in and choke the word. A couple of years ago, in one of my sermons, I, I mentioned the reality of cultural anesthesia. And all of us, because we're in the world, even if we're not of it, we all either have something in our veins or we're breathing it in the air, the cultural air. And this can lull us to sleep. Using the analogy here that Jesus is using in the parable, it's, it's the thorns that are starting to creep up and they're starting to wrap themselves around the grain. And if we're the soil, we have to think those thorns are originating in me. There's, there's a place in me where those things are coming from or where I'm allowing them to come and find comfort in my patch. In his book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, Carl Truman addresses kind of this social anesthesia reality. He does some work with Charles Taylor, who was a Canadian religious philosopher, who talks about this thing called the social imaginary. So think of it as social being society, so it's like society-wide, but then imaginary being kind of like the reality that this is the way that society sees itself and sees the world, okay? I'm not going to read you the quote from Taylor because he's really dense. I'm going to read you the quote from Truman. He says this, as Taylor describes, the social imaginary is a somewhat amorphous concept precisely because it refers to the myriad beliefs, practices, normative expectations, and even implicit assumptions that members of a society share and that shape their daily lives. It is not so much a conscious philosophy of life, like people don't wake up and say, this is my philosophy of life, how am I going to live this out today? They're more of a set of intuitions and practices in sum, the social imaginary is the way people think about the world, how they imagine it to be, how they act intuitively in relation to it. Though that is emphatically not to make the social imaginary simply into a set of identifiable ideas. It is the totality of the way we look at our world to make sense of it and to make sense of our behavior within it. What he's talking about is this cultural fog that we walk in and live in and breathe in and it, it affects the way we intuitively act and our culture intuitively acts. I'll finish up this section right here by reading this. This is a very helpful concept precisely because it takes account of the fact that the way we think about many things is not grounded in a self-conscious belief in a particular theory of the world to which we have committed ourselves. Again, you don't have these five tenets of my personal philosophy that you wake up every day saying, I'm going to adhere to these things. 
We live our lives in a more intuitive fashion. You throw a fish into water, the fish swims. Then he uses an illustration here. The fact that the quote, I am a woman, woman trapped in a man's body, makes sense to Joe Smith, probably has far less to do with him being committed to an elaborate understanding of the nature of gender and its relationship to biological sex than to the fact that it seems intuitively correct to affirm someone in his or her chosen identity and hurtful not to do so, however strange the particulars of that self-identification might have seemed to previous generations. What he's getting at is this. The world has a cultural fog that we're constantly living in, and that fog may change generation to generation or culture to culture, but nevertheless, there are desires of the world, cares of the world, desires for other things that we just breathe in, and we, they begin to affect the way we, even as good soil people, intuitively think about true reality. And that's why we need church. We need church because we come back to this place here every Sunday after breathing in the fog all week. And we're like, I need a social imaginary that is truer than what I breathe in all week. I need a society that is committed to the gospel of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit has filled them in such a way that they can discern through the word of God what is actually true. And I need to be recorrected every week. So it is a meal, like Bill said last week. I would also say it's a family true story time. It is sitting down with your kids and reading the Pilgrim's Progress. It is reading the Chronicles of Narnia. It is reading the whole story of redemption from creation to glorification and saying, praise be to God that the story is bigger than I sometimes feel it is. Nevertheless, we must beware of these dangers and repent of them and prepare our hearts to receive the word because these dangers reduce the effectiveness of it and they leave us at places of immaturity if we allow them to continue. <clears throat> Excuse me. All right. Application. Colossians 3.16 says this. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. There's the application. Brother and sister, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Fellow person made in the image of God, who today is saying, you know, I am hard-hearted, or I am rocky, or I am thorny, Oh God, by your grace, save me. Give me good soil this morning to believe that you came with a better story. You came with the truer truth. I need to be rescued from my sin and brought back into communion with the Trinity. Would you turn to Colossians 3 with me? I just want to show you this. I'm not going to dive into it too deeply. 
as you're turning there, let me just throw this tidbit out there. If you want to think more about maturity and kingdom maturity, go to Revelation 22 sometime this week and see how much in Revelation 22 Jesus protects his word because it is his word that will eventually bring the kingdom to maturity as well. But we come here to Colossians 3 to see how personal maturity plays out in corporate maturity that will eventually, by God's grace, lead to kingdom maturity. Look at verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. God, give us good soil hearts where your word can sink down deeply. And he's commanding the people in Colossae, let this happen. Consider your hardness of heart, your rockiness of heart, your thorniness of heart. Repent of those things and say, God, yes, I want your word to sink down deeply in me. And then how does this flesh out in the, in the corpus of the body of Christ? Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. So that's, that's in a great way happening from the pulpit. It's happening in the pulpit. It, it's a it's a conductor. It's a conductor conducting the orchestra. But the conductor doesn't write the piece. The composer is Christ. So I might be conducting up here. So another time somebody else might be conducting up here and I'll be sitting down here. Regardless, it's this, this pattern of teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom because there's the beauty of an orchestra. If you're missing a whole section or you're even missing an important instrument, that orchestra is not going to sound quite right. That piece will not be mature. It will not be completed the way that it should be. It needs all of the instruments. And those instruments teach and admonish one another as well in all wisdom. As they become wordy people, where the word is growing up out of their good soil, they can't help but have the wind blow it to other people. Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Let me tell you this, some of the best conversations I've had this week, let me quote a few, or at least portions of a few to you. One of you said this, I'm getting more listening ears to hear and understand on Sundays. Another of you said this, I haven't been this encouraged in a long time, and it's being with you and being in the word together that has encouraged me. Another of you said this, Matthew 1, 1 through 5 hits different, for real, for real. <laughs> Another one of you said this, if I am in Christ, that is enough. My performance doesn't define me anymore. He does. These are examples of teaching and admonishing one another. These are examples of intentionally speaking the gospel to each other in a way that blows the fog out of our nostrils so we can breathe in the truth of the gospel. Look up at chapter 3, verse 3 of Colossians. And with this I close. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. 
For when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. This is the reality that when, when the Holy Spirit gives us ears to hear and understand and believe, he illuminates our hearts and our minds to do that, to receive the gospel in that way. By faith we believe, and our sins are forgiven. And we are united with Christ. So that it is no longer our performance, even our immaturity or maturity, that defines us. It is the fact that by the Spirit we've been made good soil people because he is the best soil. And he is the sower who is tilling that soil. And he comes to the community garden of the church and he says, there's a plot and there's a plot and there's a plot and there's a plot and I'm going to scatter seed over all of those and I'm going to help by the Spirit to pull up those thorns in her life and to toss out those rocks over there because when I do a community garden, I finish a community garden. And that community garden is united in me. One of you this week also said this. We were talking about this reality of union in Christ. And he said, so if we're talking about maturity and union in Christ, doesn't that mean that I'm complete, but I'm not completely complete? And I said, exactly. Let's pray. Oh God, we ask for more grace that you would take the gospel and illuminate hearts this morning for those who have not believed, who have not been, been born again, regenerated by your work, that you would do that. And I pray, Lord, for those who, by your grace alone, you have given good soil. Oh, Lord, pull up thorns, break up rocky, calloused ground, Toss out the rocks. Help us to hear your word, to understand, to believe, and to mature. Thank you that through your grace we can be united with you, Jesus. What a place to be. In your name we pray. Amen.